Thanks for checking out A Critical Image. In this, the pilot episode, I'm going to look at anxiety through the lens of embarrassment. I wrote this as a way of working out my own nervousness of trying to launch a podcast about Christianity. Because I'm not a theologian or anything like that, but just felt called to put my thoughts out there. Anyways, here we go. Part 1, Holy Communion. One Sunday, I was watching a church service on TV with my family. Um, We don't usually do this, but there are a lot of firsts this year, to say the least. Uh, Anyways, they were going to do communion after the service, so my seven-year-old daughter, who apparently loves communion, ran into the kitchen, got a slice of white bread and a small cup of apple juice because, quote, we didn't have any grape juice, like, okay, Baptist, but... Uh, She and her brother, they tore the bread into little pieces and began to take communion by intinction, uh, which is where you dip the bread into the juice. Uh, I joined them as reverently as I could uh, while still in my pajamas. Then my kids kept going. They kept taking of the elements, tear, dip, eat, tear, dip, eat. You know, they gushed over how delicious it was, like they were hosts on the Food Network eating tapas at a Michelin star restaurant. When they finished off the bread, my daughter went back to the kitchen and got more. Then they resumed. After two pieces of bread dipped in apple juice each, I made them stop. If you've ever taken communion in a church, you know, any church, you know this is not how it works. You get a tiny piece of bread or that weird wafer thing and a sip of wine or grape juice. But just stop and think for one second. Consider the meaning behind Holy Communion and maybe we can learn something from how my kids were being. Part 2. The First Communion Now, the First Supper was a supper the Passover meal, right? Not a food and wine tasting. It's highly unlikely that everyone ate just one tiny piece of bread dipped in a few milliliters of wine. I'd guess everyone ate a meal's worth of food. Now, from my readings of the event, uh, as it's been reported in each of the Gospels, I imagine that there was only one, maybe two people who didn't eat a normal portion. Maybe Jesus picked at his food, having a lot on his mind. But Luke reports that Jesus said to the disciples, quote, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's uh, from Luke twenty-two fifteen. So, anyways, uh, in my experience, an eager person is they they have a fine appetite. They they can eat they can eat well. Conversely. Judas sat there already guilty, having already agreed to betray his lord. He was probably a little antsy, maybe a little anxious. Almost surely, Judas mainly pushed his food around his plate. Now, you know, Jesus said someone would betray him, and when the disciples asked him who would do it, Jesus answered, quote, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. End quote. And that's from John thirteen twenty six. Um, Think about that verse again. 
The only person who is mentioned of eating a tiny morsel of bread dipped in wine is Judas. Now, I'm sure everyone else um, also did that, but I think everyone else also had a full meal. Um, Personally, I think Jesus ate well, and I imagine that Judas felt a little embarrassed for him because perhaps no one saw more clearly the almost ironic truthfulness of the things Jesus was saying and predicting that evening at the table. Part 3, Communion, the prequel. Uh, Let's look at a different dinner party, uh, often called the first anointing of Jesus, and this story is also found in all four Gospels. Now, although the details vary from book to book, the point I'm going to make fits them all. In this narrative, there's a gathering of people for a dinner. A woman who's a known sinner, her name is Mary. Um, Many traditions believe it's Mary Magdalene, um, but we don't know for sure. Anyways, this person, she breaks open a bottle of very expensive perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with it. She gets rebuked by the disciples. Judas, of course, is named, but the others take part as well. Immediately, they are counter-rebuked by Jesus. He points out that she's doing a good thing and declares, quote, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Uh, Which I think is pretty cool because here we are 2,000 years later talking about her. Now, many sermons on this event focus on the value of the oil or perfume um, and therefore the value of our sacrifice and service to Christ and to others. They, They point out that Quote, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, those are great and important lessons and probably the main ones we should pull, but I want to take a different view of the events in order to v- develop another point. Now, I want you to think about that lady with the tiny nose who sits like three pews in front of you at church. Uh, you know, at least you try to make sure it's three rows away. Or think about that bro who walks past your cubicle like 50 times a day. What do you have in common, they ask? Well, you could smell her perfume or his cologne from a mile away. And you know you can't stand it. They must put on a whole bottle, you think to yourself. You're literally embarrassed for them. Now, imagine when Mary poured out a pint of fragrant oil on Jesus' feet. It's reported that it smelled up the whole room. And you know how your sense of smell is tied to your sense of taste. Yeah, so the smell of that oil saturated the room. The wine that you can't believe is $20 and that food that you just have to get the recipe for ended up tasting just like that perfume. Yummy. So pretty much the whole party was ruined and Judas wasn't having any of it. I bet he was embarrassed for her. Part 4, 
two and a half kinds of embarrassment. Now, when you're embarrassed by someone, it's a bad thing. You want to be as unlike that person as possible. Teenagers are embarrassed by their parents. When you're embarrassed for someone, there's a sense of empathy in that contrast. You want the other person to be more like you. Parents are often embarrassed for their children. But these are really two sides of the same coin. In neither instance does the embarrassed want to be like the embarrasser. Now the exception is the half in our two and a half types of embarrassment. This is the case of faked embarrassment, which is, I think, brought on by jealousy. It's almost always couched as being embarrassed for the other person. I think the reason is that there's an egotistical replacement of you wanting to be like them with you wanting them to be like you. So if we put it in those terms, I think Judas was jealous of Mary. All right, let's take some time to develop this, and uh, we'll look at a scripture and then move on from there. This is Psalm 150, uh, verse 1, and then verse 5 and 6 from the New Living Translation. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heaven. Praise him with a clash of cymbals. Praise him with loud clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes sing praise to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Like I mentioned earlier, I've been watching a lot more church on TV and YouTube since this whole COVID-19 stay-at-home thing started. Uh, I've recently come to enjoy Elevation Church, um, Stephen Furtick and the messages he delivers. Uh, In some ways, he's a lot like the pastor at Highland Community Church in Columbus, Georgia, where I'm a member. They both sing with their hands up and their eyes closed. They yell out the emphatic parts of their sermons. Uh, They attempt to look you in the eye when they preach. Now, in my opinion, they are both like clanging cymbals. They're like a poured out pint of perfume. Their energy invades my personal space and makes me uneasy. Their zeal for the Lord and the gospel... um, To put it bluntly, it threatens my senses. Now, if the ritual of communion is a stand-in for our, for my interaction with God through Jesus, the aroma of these people, it saturates my food and drink. Honestly, sometimes I'm embarrassed for them, but, you know, I guess maybe I'm a little jealous. Part 5. The Embarrassment of a Christian. My son used to always say he was embarrassed at the wrong time, but he, I mean, he would literally use the term incorrectly. Uh, like when we were teaching him to swim, he would say he couldn't do it by himself because he was embarrassed. Uh, when he started to learn to ride a bike, he wanted to keep his training wheels on because he was embarrassed without them. So, uh, you know, if we look at that, it's pretty obvious. When he said he felt embarrassed, he meant he felt anxiety. Uh, when he was embarrassed, uh, what he really meant was that he was afraid. I can relate. You know, 
I've felt different types of embarrassment throughout my Christian experience. Upon returning to the faith in my 30s, I felt a little embarrassed for changing who I thought I was and, you know, what I thought I believed. Even now, because a lot of my political convictions don't quite, don't quite line up, um, I'm a little embarrassed that although the church I attend is n- technically non-denominational, it's a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I never saw that coming. I never saw myself being a member of a church, of a Southern Baptist church, uh, just to be frank. Um, and, I mean, beyond that, I never thought I would actually watch, much less enjoy, like a mega church service on TV. Um, but I'm, I have thoroughly enjoyed Elevation. Um, I like Passion Church uh, and and others. For some reason or another, though, these things give me anxiety and are difficult for me to admit. There are plenty of other examples I could give, but I think these give you the picture. These things cause me to feel embarrassed, privately and publicly. So, what is the source of this embarrassment? I mean, I think it's easy to say that publicly there is a fear of being judged or stereotyped, uh, but I'm not really sure why I feel this way privately, and that's what I'm kind of going to look into next. There are parts of me that still live in the past, or more precisely, parts of me from the past that are still living in me today. There's the 18-year-old too cool for itself, or the 24-year-old who knows everything, and the 30-something who is just over it all. Uh, Those versions of me, it's like they're still watching me and judging me. It's like they are embarrassed by me. But there are also the future versions of myself that judge me. Uh, For example, maybe there's a 50-year-old me who can't believe how complicated I make things, or a 65-year-old me who lovingly pities me for having ever felt this way. You know, as a Southerner, uh, bless your heart comes to mind. It's like they are embarrassed for me. Yeah, it's almost like there's a society of me... uh, It seems like there's a process involving a group of me's from the past conferring with a group of me's from the future. It's like they're voting on how I feel now. As I look to scripture for ways of being, trying to figure this out, um, two verses I find are Philippians 3.13, which is, I forget what is behind me and reach forward to what is ahead, but also Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Kind of pulling all that together, there's these two types of embarrassment that we're talking about can be seen kind of part of this subject-object relationship. When a subject realizes his or her objectivity, they become embarrassed by the situation. But when an object is given subjectivity, you know, like they receive empathy, the giver of subjectivity is embarrassed for the other. 
Now the former expresses how we come to understand our sinful nature. That is when we're embarrassed to buy something. And the latter, when someone is embarrassed for us, that illustrates the functioning of salvation. Uh, I, I'll need to develop that more um, in the future, I think. I think I'm just starting to understand that myself and, and grasp that myself. So um, I think I will develop that more as in, on, in a new episode. Um, but for now, let's take a full stop and recap. I started with an anecdote about my children gloriously feasting on homemade communion elements and contrasted their behavior with the more sparse and somber ritual that happens in most churches, which I then compared with speculation about whether Judas could stomach more than a morsel of bread at Christ's last Passover meal. Then I laid out how we should not be ashamed of the gospel but instead be like clanging cymbals or strong perfume, feeling free in our sharing of the gospel with everyone. So am I suggesting that the way we do communion in church is treacherous? Well, no. Well, not exactly. On one hand, we would rightfully be embarrassed for someone who ate a lot of bread, not to mention drank too much wine, at a church communion. That's just not how it's done. On the other hand, shouldn't we, as the church mimicking the Last Supper, be embarrassed by the posture in which we just consume it? And the key word there is consume. Wouldn't our future, quote-unquote, new heaven and new earth selves be embarrassed for us? Wouldn't they have a gracious pity that wished we would just enjoy the Eucharist as if we were eating at a five-star restaurant? Are we not, symbolically at the very least, eating and drinking of a meal that we believe gives us life like no other? Is it not an eternal ration that should be ingested as opposed to simply consumed with both reverence and eagerness? And shouldn't we, like children, desire to go back for seconds, thirds, and so on until we are filled or until we are refused? In one sense, we will never be refused. And that is where we will pick up in the next episode as we kind of dive deeper into navigating embarrassment. Now, kind of as a little postscript here, um, a little factoid I found that 16 times in Leviticus, an aroma is described as being pleasing to the Lord. 